though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back here to Skype the Strength. It's a real blessing to be uh, with you again. Welcome to you, Mark, from wherever Australia. It's good to have you on our call this morning uh, and many, many others here. Um, so with Strength to Strength, one of our purposes is to um, enable or facilitate uh, candid conversations and look at topics that are that are very important for the day and even topics that are um, quite uh, um, have a lot of conflict around them, especially in our world. And uh, this morning, we're again looking at one of those topics, and the title is A Proper Theology of the Body. Part two. So Kyle Stolzius is joining us from Guy's Mills, where he works at Faith Builders and is part of a, a church there, a pastor at a church um, there called Shalom Mennonite Church. Right, Kyle? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we have the privilege with All Nations Bible Translation now the privilege of working with their church. Um, they have a family that's mm-hmm. going down to the Amazon. And uh, so I've, I've been able to work with Kyle on different fronts. Um, and so it's a, it's a blessing to be with him. Kyle also really likes a good cup of coffee. So we've, we've connected around that as well. So yeah, part two this morning. Um, part one is worthwhile listening to. If you have not listened to that, definitely go back and listen to that where he lays out the foundations and the principles for a proper understanding of our human bodies and uh, how, uh, yeah, they're made in God's image and so many other beautiful things that he lays out there um, in that in that um, talk, and then this morning, building on more, I think, under, I understand more practical applications of this proper theology. So, Kyle, good to have you back here, and uh, let's just go ahead and bow our heads for prayer before we launch into this very important topic. Let's let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the strength to rise again this morning. And Father, we we know that we are bowing our heads and we're talking to. A God that is way beyond our comprehension. But yet that we, we, we know that a God that, that loves us, a father in heaven who, who has sent his only son uh, into the world because you love us. You sent your son to redeem us back to yourself, to provide this incredible avenue of reconciliation, not only with, with you, but with others and with the world, uh, with myself. Um, who I am. And Father, this morning we're looking at this very important topic, um, trying to understand this, this, uh, how you made us and what that means and all the things surrounding that. Father, I pray that you give Kyle a special outpouring of wisdom and clarity of mind. Father, that this talk could be another one of those talks that, that bring impact and that bring clarity, that bring purpose. Um, and that can be part of just another part of tool in your hands in advancing your kingdom here on earth. So, Father, just guide and direct us this morning. I pray that you would bless Kyle. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, brother. Um, all yours. Okay. Thanks so much, Brian. And uh, it's a privilege to join you all at 6 a.m. in the morning. You've, you've got to care about something. And I do find a little bit of irony to to uh to think about getting our bodies roused at six o'clock in the morning to talk about having bodies um, <laughs> i would i would just note too like this this topic i do feel is one of those that it's it's clearly there's there's people 
all over the map in our in our broader culture these days about uh, what our bodies are for and a lot of body ambiguity, a lot of body hatred, even you could say. Um, but this this is one of those those hot button topics. So I'm going ahead and I'm making some claims about um, what what I feel that the Bible teaches us about our bodies and what God's intentions are for them. Um, I'm going to just spend a little bit of time, five or ten minutes, no more than ten, uh, just looking back and recapping some of of what we did in the in the first video, where, uh, like Brian said, we were, we were laying some groundwork and was trying trying to trying to sketch what what the contours of a good understanding, a good theology of the body is using that biblical language of the image. Really, really significant. You know, God creates humans and he calls them his image. What does that mean? Well, I think it means a lot, a lot for our bodies. Um, let's get started. Let's get started with this quote from uh, Basil of Caesarea or Caesarea. Uh, I've ran across this little gem since we made the last video. So I thought I'd introduce using that. This, this is from uh, the last of his six sermons, which he wrote and delivered uh, about the creation of the world. What I want you to notice here is uh, what what position or what how he talks about the world and what it's for. So he's, he's, he's looking at Genesis and he's starting to summarize. This is his last of six sermons. And he says this to investigate the great and prodigious show of creation to understand supreme and ineffable wisdom, you must bring personal light for the contemplation of the wonders which I spread before your eyes. So he's like, he's, he's bringing you to the show, right? And now he's going to, he's, he's almost like the, the ringmaster and he's going to show you what's, what's happening. That's, that's what he sees his role as here as the preacher and help me according to your power in this struggle where you are not so much judges as fellow combatants, he says. And then he goes on. He goes on. And and for Basil, um, when he talks about the creation, he, 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 he doesn't really have a place for just pious spectating. Oh, wow, that sunset was so beautiful. Or I need to get a picture of that waterfall or those sorts of things that that's a part of it for him. But but pious spectating about the magnificence of the world isn't going to be quite enough for him. Uh, serious contemplation in the mind of Basil, especially as you read on in that sermon, it demands that we become actors in the arena of creation, image bearers in what he says the the amphitheater, right? Or like we were talking about it in God's temple, but he lays out creation. He makes it like this amphitheater. And we enter in there as people who are in the struggle with God. So I, I find that returns to, especially in the the ancient Near East context, this this line that we traced last time. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you see how God carefully took and he crafted time and energy and matter 
and he constructed a place where people would offer him sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and sacrifice. And, and that, that, that this is his temple, right? Because he's crafting a place where he'll be worshiped rightly. And he gets done building the temple, gets done constructing the temple. And one thing was still missing from the temple. Uh, what's the thing that was missing? Well, you would expect that if he's building a temple, the last thing he's going to do, right, is to place his idol in there because that's what you did with temples. You place this, this caricature, this, this thing that puts in the contours of what the God is like into the temple. And, and, and then he creates you and I, humans, right? His image bearers, we say. And, and you come to realize, you come to realize as you go on, as, as this God, as Yahweh, as he, as he moves ahead and he forbids the making of some kind of carved wood or uh, stone image, he forbids that. And that's at least partly because the God of Israel, we realize, has invested in each of his image bearers the privilege and the obligation of worshiping in his temple, but which is the cosmos. It's the whole world. That is, it's our privilege, it's our obligation to make him visible, to extend his character and presence in the world. In other words, present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable service. And I think I think this is really good news. This is the good news of Genesis for our bodies. We get to make God visible. We get to extend him into the world. And that, that's a huge claim. That is an absolutely huge claim. Um, and that claim, I think, is, it's, it's only intensified in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, in Colossians, he images the invisible God. And when he does that, when he images, when he makes visible the invisible God, uh, we get a clearer picture of what it means to bring creation to flourishing and what it means to offer worthy sacrifices. So I've made from that, following this thread scripturally through of image, God's image, uh, I've made the claim that when it comes to our bodies, uh, the whole movement of the Christian faith is not about the transportation of our bodies or transportation of our souls, rather, to some kind of disembodied existence. The whole movement, the direction is about the transformation of our bodies so that they become even more real, more substantive and more fully representative of God's body on earth as it is in heaven. So back to Basil a little bit, you know, by Christ's spirit, the invitation there is to enter the theater of God's struggle and make him visible in our bodies. This is part of what it means to bear his image. Okay, that's that's where we've been. That's the claim that I'm making. It gets more interesting, I think, when you begin to reflect on, oh, okay, well, you know, if our bodies are, are actually here to make God visible, uh, what are the implications of that? So I still have 
four claims to make about the implications for that will pick up and we'll see just how far we'll get. Those four claims are that first, a Christian body is a mortal body. Second, Christians know with their bodies that Christian body is a sexual body and that a Christian body is Christ's body. Okay, we'll see just how far we go. Let's dive in and see where we end up. I'll try to make these as self-contained as I get. So first, uh, a Christian body is a mortal Body by mortal, uh, I just mean it, it has the Christian body it has a, it has a starting time, it has an ending time, it has a birth, it has a death. That's that's what it means to be mortal. And and I just have to I have to reflect. This is why this one is really important. I think uh, these days we have very few reminders of our mortality, and and this is tragic. This is tragic because. When we have few reminders of mortality, when we refuse to enter into our mortality, uh, that puts a barrier between us and eternal life. There's an irony in there. I'm going to develop that. These days, uh, it seems like we want to remove death and dying as far from our experience as possible. We have the option these days of warehousing our elderly so they don't have to uh, we don't have to witness the breakdown of their bodies. And then when they do die, the death professionals handle their bodies and we can have them cremated. Never have to see the body. And then if we would want, we could have a, a, a memorial service for them. Let's call it a celebration of their life. Having never seen them age, having never seen them die or be buried. Because these days in a culture that's obsessed with youth and living and living to your fullest self, that would be kind of unpleasant. So let's just sideline that, right? Contrast that. Contrast that with the death of uh, my wife, Marlene's grandfather. He just died less than a month ago. When... When his death, when we, when we realized, when his family realized that his death was, was inevitable, he was surrounded by the young and by the old. Forgiveness was offered both by him and by people around him, and it was received and extended. There was affirmation of his life, and he died. Um, it was beautiful. It was unpleasant. I can't really know how to reconcile those things. Death isn't really pleasant, but it, it was beautiful. Now, we saw his body multiple times um, before he was placed in the ground. Good seed, we could say. Good seed. And it was sown freely, especially, I'm told, as, as he aged. And then we placed earth over him. And I, I saw my my daughters and my son, all of all of who love him or loved him, do that. I saw them do that. And quite the contrast. I, I want you to catch that. But why 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 is that important? Here's the question. I think what what if the limits, what if the limits that God put around the tree of life were a blessing, not a curse. That's that's where we get our mortality from, we say, right? 
from the, the, the failure of Adam and Eve to have the privilege to take the tree of tree of life. What if God's denial of that to them was a blessing, not a curse? See, Adam and Eve, they presumed, they lunged at the tree when they should have patiently obeyed. And, and because of that, they did not eat of the tree of life. But Genesis puts it, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. There's just this reality in our lives. We will die. We should not live forever on this side of Eden. And this could sound like a curse. But imagine, imagine a life that continued forever, a life where we press further and further into our self-guided quest to know good and evil and grasp with more and more desperation at life. Whatever it is that we're grasping for to get life, maybe some kind of iron certainty that we can close our fists around, or maybe it's just sex or calories or experiences going to go for those things more and more and more frantically if we think that those are the things that are going to give us life. We reach for all kinds of things that we think are going to give us life. But the one thing we have in common, everybody has in common, is death. This is something that our bodies unite us to, our death. And as a biological event, death is unavoidable. It's simply a matter of fact. This is tragic, but it needs to be entered not rejected. So when Christ came, when Christ came, he was united to us through the one thing we all have in common. That is our death. And Christians join themselves to Christ through their death. In other words, our baptism. We die in our baptism and we die daily thereafter. Daily to that feeling of ownership that my life is my own to do with it what I please, that, that somehow I'm entitled to fair treatment, that I should be flattered or pleased. So you and I, we have, we have countless opportunities to sow ourselves into the ground, to die daily. And our bodies unite us to that reality. That's a gift. That's a blessing not a curse. This is good news for us because when Christ voluntarily entered into death on our behalf, he broke through into life, right? And this is where we want to go. This is obviously where we want to go. I think we can go here too quickly sometimes. He changed the the use of death. It's no longer, death is no longer about fear and anxiety and and fruitless grasping for life to get a hold of something that we think is going to give us life. It's no longer about that. In Christ, we now have the possibility of entering death freely and so receiving life. And this is good news because we no longer have to live for ourselves and our egos, but rather beyond ourselves for God and neighbor. So don't don't hear me saying 
don't hear me saying that this mortality shall not put on immortality. It shall. The mortal shall put on immortality. That's the promise of the gospel. But there are no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. And Anabaptists, of all people, should have a keen sense of this. Take up your cross. There's no shortcut here. When Jesus calls us, he invites us to come and die. And these days we need all the reminders that we can get. (laughs) Our bodies unite us to that reality. So the question here, again, just to reframe it, and I'll pause for a moment. Uh, Could it be that when we ignore the way that our body unites us to death, we cut ourselves off from one of the most powerful ways that God wants to give us life? That's the question. To get to the third claim about Christian bodies, that is this, that Christians know with their bodies. Christians know with their bodies. Forgive my brazenness here, but let's begin by talking about the holes in your body. In other words, your orifices. <laughs> how many holes are in your body? Um, well, there's, it depends how you count, but there's 10 for males. And there's more if you count those holes in your body, which are present before your birth. There's thousands of little holes in your body, millions of them, if you're willing to count your pores in your skin. <clears throat> small, very small openings, but there's lots of openings. There's lots of holes in your body. How many holes are in your soul? How many perforations, how many orifices are in your soul? None, because you're self-contained. Well, I'd suggest at least one for God's spirit. That might be a good idea. The Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. You'd want to make way for him to enter your soul. How about holes in your soul for the people you want to love? Or who offer you love? And here's what I'm pushing for. It's just the reality. It's just the reality that you are not self-standing. You are not self-standing. And our bodies remind us of this. They are sites of giving and receiving. In, in the biblical word, knowing is something we do with our bodies. Belly buttons, ears, eyes, mouth. We could close all these holes up. We could close all these orifices up, make them one way. You know, I'm going to give through this, but I'm not going to receive any longer. We could try that. But then we'd only test our mortality. Results in five minutes or less, guaranteed. So So what do the holes in your body have to do with knowing God? That's the question. And I, I think it's I think it goes like this, that the, the sight of giving and receiving, which is our body because of its porousness, the intention is for every pore, everything that we receive, everything we perceive and for everything that we say and do to make God visible. Your 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 body becomes, in a sense, this is limited in a sense, where God 
respirates, where he gives and receives. So our bodies, they're, they're sites of giving and receiving. They're tangled up in a, in a bewildering array of other persons, of the places, the persons, all moving along this pathway from life to death. We are not self-contained persons in the Bible. The Bible is rich with God blessing and sanctifying these locations of giving and receiving because these are the way that we know. Adam knew his wife, it says in Genesis. Know the Lord is the calling over and over and over again in the biblical text. Know the Lord, or by this we know him if we keep his commandments. Or knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. My claim here, my claim is that in, in the biblical world, knowledge has a much more embodied ring to it than something that only happens between our two ears. In other words, knowledge is not something we can simply take in and then drag back to some kind of interior castle, a fortress where our knowledge is secure and invulnerable to what other people want or need or suffer. Knowledge is something we need to attempt. We need to perform. We need to desire it. And this too is part of what it means to image God. But I want to ground us a little bit here. That's the big picture. Let's get specific. Let's do a little dive here on Philippians 3.10. Talks about knowledge. Philippians 3.10 reads like this. I'll go through till verse 12, where Paul, Paul is talking about his desire to know the Lord through Christ. And he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I had already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. You catch that? Paul wants to know him. He wants to know Christ. And the way that he is going to know Christ, he explains, is to share and to become like. He will share Christ's sufferings. He will become like him in death. This is not body optional knowing about. It's not the sort of knowing that comes from memorizing a list of facts about Jesus or speculating about how it is that Jesus justifies us through his death. He does talk about that, too, but not here. Not when he's talking about knowing. And here's another dimension of it. He says, not that I have already obtained. In other words, there are continued ways to continue knowing Jesus. Knowing does not imply mastery in the simple sense of taking a list and getting 100% right on the test, on the exam. It's less like knowing a test and more like 
performing in an arena. <laughs> it's more like worshiping in a temple. It's Paul here. He's not speaking the language of some kind of wishful dreamer or a theorizer. Knowing for Paul and for other New Testament writers, it conveys the sense of grace trained reflexes of immediate judgments of senses which have been trained with experience to discern good and evil. And Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So this thing of knowledge, how we obtain it, what it is, it's a major biblical theme. And I'm at least just going to suggest that uh, modern notions of knowledge, which emphasize knowledge that or knowledge about something only capture one part of the biblical wealth of what it means to know something. In the biblical world, knowing was not body optional. Knowing was something you had to attempt. Knowing was something you had to enter the arena, and then you actually began to know it had much more to do with your body and your experiences and senses. In other words, in both Testaments, knowing is inseparably related to the experience of God in the context of his community, that is the church. That's a critical difference. In the biblical sense, knowledge is more about growth through practice, God's revelation and change and less about theory, information or opinion. So I'll just gather this up. In Genesis 4 again, uh, we're told that Adam knew his wife. <laughs> That's the pattern we're following. I don't, I don't think this means that he thought about her, that he dispassionately observed her to know about her. This was not body optional knowing. And in the same way, when the Bible calls us to know the Lord, we, we aren't being called to some kind of dispassionate body optional experience of knowing about him. We are called to passionately enter the, the pattern of life where we're going to have our reflexes honed, our judgments altered, and our senses trained to make him visible in all aspects of life. So Christians know with their bodies. I'll pause for a moment there if anybody's got something they'd like to ask and clarify. Amen. I don't have any questions, but well said. Okay. <clears throat> and I'll hopefully we'll if we get to toward the end here, I'll, I'll give some time. I'll do welcome more interaction. Number four, a Christian body is a sexual body. A Christian body is a sexual body. This one, this one can get tricky. Um, in the Christian tradition, there is, there is a, a, a lively theme of, we could call it androgyny. That is idealizing some kind of sexless humanity or sexless human being. Um, I don't want to go there too far except to say that, uh, I don't, I don't fully understand what our bodies will be like in, in the coming age when Christ redeems us. 
we're, we're given some shadows, some contours there. I don't know that that's not the argument I'm having right now. Or that's not what I'd like to discuss. What I'd like to look at is our present experience, right? And um, fairly, fairly obvious, I think our bodies are sexual bodies, at least, at least for now. I would also suggest into the coming age as well. Let's get started with this here. And this is from a recent article in BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporations. I'm just going to quote from it. This article um, describes how how some parents are are choosing gender creative parenting styles. I'll just read a little. Some parents are championing gender creative parenting styles which are designed to let children pick their own identities, gender identities, later in life. As Gabriella Martinson prepared for the birth of her first child, she came to a decision. She wouldn't tell her child if she'd been born, if they'd been born, sorry, wrong pronoun, if they'd been born boy or girl, and would largely avoid discussing their birth sex with people outside her family and friendship group. You know, we quote Gabriella. I wanted them to know who they wanted, or I wanted them to be who they wanted to be. I didn't want to decide that for them, says Martinson, who is 30 and living in her own home city, Stockholm, when she and her first, when she had her first child. It's just that I don't want to decide what they grow up to do or who they decide to love and to live with. Okay. So the question we return to here, what is being made visible? What is being made visible? What is embodied in this vision of sexuality? What's being made visible here? And and how is the body or the self being portrayed in this vision of sexuality. How do you make God visible in contrast to that? How would you make God visible? How do you image God with yours? And the first thing I have to notice here with Martinson, with with all due respect, because we have to be careful with this one, Sometimes sympathetic, but I think always sensitive. This is some people's experience of their bodies. I, I have to note the distinction that's made between gender and sexuality. Okay. Sex is a biological given. That's what the body gives us. But gender is something you get to choose in Martinson's way of looking at it. The biological part, then, the visible part of the body is just a canvas that you use to sexually express your true self, your true gender. But it doesn't have a claim, that biological part doesn't have a claim on who you actually are. Some some folks have pointed out that this way of seeing our bodies, where there's just this shell on the outside of the biological self and that it doesn't have a claim on who I truly am. That's where my gender is, what I choose it to be. Some have pointed out how that has some things in common with uh, uh, the, this ancient 
this ancient legacy of Gnosticism that rejects the embodied as an imposter, as something alien, as something to get rid of. But I also have to point out that if we preach a body optional gospel, if our bodies are optional in our relationship with God, we may not be prepared to address this challenge. In fact, we might be accidentally promoting it. Okay. So this is a really, really large issue these days. And I do, I do encourage us to be sensitive here. Um, there's a lot of people who experience a functional and dramatic split between who they feel their true self is. That's the interior self and their bodies. We even have a word for that. It's dysphoria. It's a very, very disorienting, crippling experience. So I, <laughs> I, I you, can't, you can't endorse that, but at the same time, this is people's experience. And Christians are writing a whole lot about it these days. Um, many Christians are having to do a lot of hard work to, to articulate what our bodies or our sexuality has to do with their relationship with God. Because there's been a gap there. And it takes something like a seismic cultural change, which we're going through right now, for us to realize that we may not have done, we may not have done really well with this one. Part of the energy, I think there's, there's dramatic amounts of literature being written here right now. Part of that energy comes from realizing that we're kind of exposed. We're kind of vulnerable. We haven't preached a gospel that actually incorporates our bodies very well. The only thing, the only thing I can suggest here is this. I wish we had more time. This is a really important issue these days. Um, I'll at least throw out some categories for us. How is it? How is it that you could make your body, sorry, your sexuality? How could you see your sexuality as making God visible? There we go. I think I got it. How do you make God visible with your sexuality? I'll suggest, and this is drawing from a lot of Christian reflection, I'll suggest at least five ways. And we could expand these. This is just saying, yes, there is a positive Christian case for saying you can make God visible through your sexuality. And the first way is procreation. Making more image bearers. That's how we make God visible with our bodies and through our sexuality. Second aspect is what some have called uh, fecundity. God delights in giving life, in making things flourish. He is by nature a fecund being. And, and we join that delight in our sexuality. We actually participate in making God visible through it. In marriage. Third, in marriage, we make God visible through our bodies in their sexuality, this bringing together of two unlike things into something new. Like Paul says it's a great mystery, but it tells us about Christ and the church. There's relationality. Um, sexuality, in other words, brings people together. We're drawn to people through it. And we are we are incomplete. We recognize in our desire for others. And we can, we can have another name for it, 
this desire toward others. We have another name for it when it's the only thing that we want. That's called lust. But but it can become a way in the right context. This desire for others can become a way of manifesting and enjoying God's desire for us and telescoping that for projecting it into the world, making God visible. The fifth way that we make God visible in our sexuality is through bonding. I think this one is pretty powerful. Uh, Bonding. Sexuality, it brings together people who are different, but also that are similar enough that they can form bonds. And it's it's in that interplay of same, rather same, but different. Same, but different. Not same, same, not different, different, but same, but different. It's in that interplay where we actually were able to form bonds and it shows us something really powerful about God's covenantal relationship with us. Um, so sexuality, <laughs> a Christian body I'm claiming is a sexual body. It's, it's not sex optional. And even, even for people, um, we, we have to, we have to work, I think, to understand ways in which people who are unmarried, who have not had sexual experience, who have not had babies, they too are sexual. Okay. It's, it's not just, it's not just in the procreative activities that, that we get to show this. And that, that's, that's where places like bonding can really help us understand that, I think. I'll point out here briefly that, uh, I think it's attached to this talk, the, uh, same-sex attractions and gender dysphoria, um, the little article put together by Viewpoint. I think that that's a pretty good primer, a primer on how we've arrived at a cultural moment where this disconnect between embodiment and the true self, the inner self, is even possible. And last, I want to end with this one. The Christian body is Christ's body. Great place to end off. There's two aspects to this. The Christian body is Christ's. The first way that our Christian bodies are Christ's is that our bodies are, in the words of Marpeck, they are the elongation of the incarnation. I love that phrase. They are the elongation of the incarnation. This phrase that comes up over and over in the New Testament, the body of Christ the body of Christ that's used to describe the relationship between Christ and people who, by the Spirit, have been called to make Christ the image bearer visible in the world. Uh, these are the ones who have had all the openings of their body blessed and called and judged through Christ. And this is not, this is something, this is something that we do as individuals. It's that. But, but more often than not, and you notice the New Testament pattern more often than not, it takes more than one Christian to make Christ visible. It takes a lot of Christians to even begin to make the outline of Jesus visible. So when the New Testament authors say you are the body of Christ, they usually mean it in the plural. Y'all. Use. Uh, Wendell, this one's for you. Yins. It's how they mean it. So, so one aspect, one aspect of this that I find compelling, when we say 
that we are Christ's body, I don't think we actually mean that as a metaphor. By the Spirit, the distance between Christ and his body becomes zero. We are the elongation of the incarnation. We're united to Christ to become his physical representatives in the world. We share his image-bearing calling in the temple, and we share the dignity of his sonship. And we also share in his redemption. This is where I'd like to end. Romans 8 puts it this way. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Christ may be the firstborn among many brothers. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ, the first fruits. Then those, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Language of first fruits here. The first fruits, they were the, they were the crops first offered, they were the first crops offered to God by Israel. Uh, from the general planting. It's it's not as though there was some kind of special early planting that was offered as the first fruits. When the first fruits were offered, the general harvest had begun. And and here's the connection. In the same way, uh, for those of us in Christ, there may be some distance between us and Jesus' resurrection, but there is a single harvest. When we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we anticipate our resurrection. We are heirs with Jesus. What belongs to Jesus as the son of God, he shares with us first fruits with our, by our adoption. And, and this anticipates the full fruition of our bodies. Everything that they were made for, everything that God anticipated in them, entering more fully and more creatively and more resourcefully to offer creative and resourceful worship in his temple. Continuing in Romans 8, just a little bit, we know that the whole creation, the whole amphitheater, everything has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until now. Why? What, what, what is it groaning about? Well, it's awaiting the image bearers. It's awaiting the, the creation, the formation, the birth of these image bearers. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of son as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there we have it. We're coming back somewhat to the beginning. We start with image bearing and we end with that. We end with that continuingly enter more and more fully into this glorified, into the full riches of what God has in mind for our bodies. I find that a, uh, a compelling and a hopeful, and I think a beautiful picture as well. I'll stop there. I've made my three, my three claims. I've tried to be consistent and bringing them back to this image bearing and that our bodies are not somehow optional as this. I'll uh, 
open the floor either to Wendell or to your questions at this point. <clears throat> well, thank you, brother. Um, yeah, excellent talk. Really appreciate that. I didn't have the, I didn't have the privilege of being on the first part. Um, but yeah, really, really, uh, like I said, amen to what you said. Uh, you, you referenced an article on the Anabaptist Review. What was the name of that? Um, that was, it's, it's linked right on the, the hosting page here, I believe. Viewpoint. So. Anabaptist Viewpoint. Um, there's some folks, colleagues here that have worked on that as well. It's partly why it's in my awareness, but there, there's a lot of, a lot of resources. That one's just a good place to start or at least dip your toes in if you'd like. Yeah, thank you. So a question I have, um, we'll open it up. I'm sure there's quite a few other questions here, but you, you kind of briefly touched on this, but in your, uh, the part about our bodies are sexual. Yeah. Um, so a question I have, what ways, how can someone who is, who is not in a marriage relationship, participate in this wholeness of of body and you know not not the separation of body and and self yeah in in do you have any more thoughts on how they how they can do this in a good way with because they're not in a in a sexual relationship with with another with a woman or a man i mean opposite sex um any good thoughts on that off we as uh, a lot of anabaptist people view rightly view marriage and family very highly yeah. sometimes the people who are not married then can kind of fall through the cracks mm-hmm. i don't know mm-hmm. if you have any comments on that but I, th- I think you've done a good job of highlighting some of the the place that singles can find themselves in or those who can't have children right um in a, in a context which brightly celebrates some functions of sexuality. And I, and I, that's, that's something that's worth preserving, that's worth investing in. When, when we see sexuality as something which has part of its full expression in childbearing, that's a beautiful thing. But there are additional aspects. I can only really mention them right now. Um, like how our sexuality is, is, it's an opening toward others. It's attraction toward the other person who can't complete me, but I desire them. And that, that at least it's, it's, it's a basis for forming friendships, not only, um, not only because of sexual attraction, but because we're just oriented that way as human beings toward the other. That, that's not the same as, as consummating a relationship, obviously. And we'll have that longing, I think. But, but it is, it's at least an analog. Friendship can be a place for a legitimate expression of, I don't know how to say this, look, lowercase sexuality <laughs> while still giving expression toward that impulse of attraction to the other, the need for fulfillment in relationship with others. Um, artistic expression can be another form of what it means to be a life giving kind of individual. Uh, I, I just, I would never, I would never encourage a single person to make the only aspect of their sexuality 
this this determined kind of hanging on to, I must find consummation, right? I must find a physical outlet for this. Well, even married people, especially married people, we recognize that's not the only outlet. It can't be. And if that's the only outlet you have, you're going to be frustrated in your marriage. Um, there, there needs to be other ways of forming a relationship which respect the need of the other. And uh, uh, you, you can't always find the physical expression you want or you feel like you need. And then, then you're in a fix, right? So there, I think we, we, we can find other ways, even as married people. Um, and we can definitely find a, a, make a more fostering environment for people who don't have physical sexual expression, or at least not yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll open it up. What, what other questions would you have for Kyle? Those of you who have been listening in here. Great presentation, Kyle, and thanks. Um, one question I would have for you on the sexuality as a, as a, um, proof of, of this. The concept today in culture that it's my true self that I'm trying to display. At the same time, I can choose what that true self is. Hmm. Um, obviously this gets into philosophy. What determines that true self and how is it that I choose it? <clears throat> I mean, I, I can choose my occupation. I can choose how fast I drive today. I, I can choose how much cream to put in my coffee. I can choose a lot of things, but none of those are my true self. What, what is the nature of this true, my, my, my true self? What, what, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. And how does that work if it's a choice I can make today and I can make a different choice tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And I realize that's an entire subject in itself. I wonder if you just want to dip your toe into that water or mm-hmm. not. Yeah, so you're kind of trying to, if you if you boil long enough, what is this true self, or is there something of substance there? Um, this is some of the difficulty that that uh, modern, I say modern, that that these this view, this kind of dualistic view of selfhood has, is okay. So what is it? What is it that's at the middle? And at least they can say it's a choice. You decide your life is an open template. Be yourself, you know, um, just be true to yourself. You get to choose that. You get to choose the format of your life. You get to choose what kind of sexuality you're going to paint in this biological canvas you've got. Um, at least that. Two aspects of it that I would briefly highlight, I think. Um, the The one, if I can pull these together here. The one, the one is that there is a recognition within that community. Uh, if, if you would say that's what self is, is choice, is that it's going to be a lot of flux. There's going to be a lot of change. There's going to be a, a fair bit of chaos. So where is myself? I'm not the same self I was 15 minutes ago. I'm not the same self that I was in this context as I was in that context. It's indeterminate. It's, it's changing. It's, it's, constantly meandering and the the other the other aspect of this 
true selfhood, if it's something that I, I get to kind of choose the format of my life, it's, it's usually linked very closely with some kind of, um, kind of consumerist mentality. Who is my true self? Well, what do I have? What have I accumulated? What, uh, do I have a Ferrari or do I have a Pontiac? So you begin to associate things with, with what it is that this self is able to produce and to consume. Um, where I can't really look at myself as a stable source of identity because it's just, what have I chosen to become? What have, what resources have I been able to accumulate for myself? Uh, those are two aspects of it. Is, is that laying in some contours? That's an excellent, excellent answer. I really appreciate you being willing to, to wade into that pond. It's an area where our churches, our people, I feel are, we know where we stand. Mm-hmm. We don't do well at a kind, sensitive articulation of that. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I appreciate you being willing to, to swing that door open. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah. And I, I would at least again encourage this, this, we do have to know where we stand on this. Um, it's going to be a, a major issue, I think, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, and in some ways a decisive one, one of those kind of swinging door issues. Um, at the same time, don't, I'll say, I guess I'll say it a little bit strongly, don't make strong statements until you've actually interacted somebody who's in the middle of gender dysphoria. It's, it's a very difficult experience. Uh, I don't know how to understand it in a lot of ways. It's not been part of my experience, but apparently it can be part of parts of people's experience because I've, 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 I've interacted with them and it, it seems very distressing. Um, so there's, there's, it just speaks to some of the incredible variety and the strange world that we're living in right now, I guess. Hmm. Um, yeah, thank you for that comment, Ryan. There's, uh, if, if maybe, maybe you've noticed this, everyone, but there's a Glenn Martin put a link or a chat in the chat here. He put a link to the article on the viewpoint that Kyle was referring to. So that's there. If you, if you want to check that out and it's, it's on the, it is on the description page of this talk as well on the strength to strength website. So other questions? Well, I have a comment. I have a comment. Can you hear me? Yep. I can hear you, Dan. Go ahead. Um, I have been uh, uh, astonished and appalled at the uh, absolute deluge hmm. of uh, propaganda regarding the gender dysphoria. And uh, I posted uh, uh, a link to uh, 
something I, I just stumbled up on that was very, very useful. There is such a thing as just gender dysphoria, which I was inclined to not believe in, but evidently it really is true. Uh, but the way it's being handled mm. the, in the current, uh, in our society, in the current ways is, uh, I would say, not putting words in uh, Dr. Shirer's mouth, it's a fad and it's uh, very destructive. People go through uh, uh, various sex change uh, or or uh, what would be the word? Puberty frustrating procedures that are very destructive. And uh, uh, I'll say that she makes very great sense out of the whole mess. And mm-hmm. so I would recommend that to you if you find that an issue. I'm I'm just astonished at how you can just turn on the radio and I'm not properly Anabaptist because I do that a lot. And uh um just take take potluck and you're gonna come up with something about gender something crazy about gender that ten years ago would have been unheard of. What and in my life, which goes back to nineteen forty eight. Just completely off the radar. Mm. Just nothing like that. Mm. Um, so I stopped chattering. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. I, and there is, I, I can appreciate the, um, the concern there too. It's, it is, it's just incredible to me that, uh, you could introduce something like the possibility that, oh, I don't, let's say to a 10 year old, prepubescent, and then you introduce to them this possibility that, you know what? Your body actually doesn't tell you who you are. You're going to have to choose that in these coming years. And you're going to go through this monumental experience, which even for people who are fairly settled in their, in their gender identity, it's already difficult enough. It's confusing. Puberty is hard. And then you throw that on top of it and, and kind of pretend that you're, you're offering them something of value. I, I just don't get it. I just do not get it. Um, and that, that is the cultural, that's the cultural tone of these days that people they feel like they're somehow liberating young people, prepubescence by saying this, this whole thing that you're about to go through. It's a fiction. Don't believe it. You're going to have to choose. And, and, and then to, to see that as the, as if they're doing some kind of favor, um, just feels kind of unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Well, I, f- I feel it's patently ridiculous, uh, preposterous, and, uh, I think it's a spirit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a, it's a, sp- it's a spirit of the age. Mm-hmm. Because I've watched it explode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I have to think of, of the fact that, that our human nature, our sinful nature wants to rebel. And that's a very basic form of rebellion. And yeah, maybe some people who are in that place don't haven't felt it as rebellion, you know, this dysphoria, like you said, Kyle, it is a real thing. I think if, if for people who do experience it, but. Yeah. As a, as a cultural phenomenon, they, they, 
I, I where I feel sympathy is when you're working with a young person who, who everything they've been surrounded by their entire life has told them, has instructed them that they get to decide the format of their lives. They get to make the choices and their body is just some kind of free floating sexual um, canvas that they can do with whatever they want. But it does not it does not impact their true self. And then th- that's that's a horrifying <laughs> world to try to, to try to act out of. There's going to be a lot of confusion after a while as they start to run into some of the limits of their body. Um, and they try to find themselves. Uh, it's it's just going to be difficult. But those are the symbols. That's what they've been told most of their lives. Yeah. OK, any other questions? Well, if not, thanks again, Kyle, for sharing. Uh, very, very instructive and, like you said, pra- a practical look at how our bodies, what our body has to do with our relationship with God. Um, and that we have, yeah, we have been given bodies and important part of who we are. Uh, would you like uh, just a... Just an announcement here for two weeks from now is on February 25th. The next one on the schedule is sort of a long title, but it just got changed recently to, because it was Sermon on the Mount, and we thought maybe it would be good to have a, a more descriptive title because so it doesn't get confused with other talks on here. But the title is Biblical Counseling and Christian Psychology Meet the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is Seth Matson. We'll be talking on this two weeks from now and looking forward to, to hearing what he has to share on this. Okay. Kyle, would you, would you close us out in a, in a prayer, please? Yeah. I'd be honored. Okay. Let's pray. Father God, you. Uh, made us with this incredible calling and summons, this identity of being um, your image bearers. And I pray that you'll help us to uh, enter through Christ into the, the fullness of what's meant when you blessed our bodies, you blessed every pore of them, you blessed our eyes and our ears, every part of us, you blessed that. You've consecrated it and you've said, make me visible in the world. Uh, be, be the place where your mission in the world is extended, where your kingdom comes, where heaven and earth are somehow located here in our bodies. And I pray, Father, that today you'll give us, uh, give us an enjoyment, a capacity to appreciate, um, the, the calling that you've given us, a, a capacity to appreciate the uh, the, the gift that you've given us in our bodies, whether that's uh, through our mortality, whether it's um, through our, our sexuality and all of his aspects, through uh, all, all things that we have. You've given us this gift to enjoy. And I pray 
that uh, you would help us by your grace to do that today. We receive our lives as a gift and we offer them back in sacrifices of thanks. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks again, everyone, for being part of this and welcome you back in two weeks. God bless your day. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.